Good morning, everyone. Let me just uh, open with a word of prayer. Uh, Father God, may you open our hearts and our minds as we look into your word to see what you have to say to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me uh, paint a hypothetical situation for you. Let's just say that uh, someone new is starting at your work, a young, fresh-faced graduate straight out of university. And of course, you take the time to show them the ropes, make sure they know about the intricacies of how to work that uh, temperamental photocopier, let them know how all the office politics work out, you know, who holds the real power of who gets what done, who it's important to remain on the right side of, and all the little things to do and to say, see, you stay in everyone's good books. Of course, you help them to get up to speed on all of the things, how to do their job well as well. Pass on all the wisdom and skills that you've picked up over your years in the job. And over the next few months, your young protege grows in skill and reputation to become a rising star in the office. And then that surprise opportunity comes up. The boss is moving on, taking another job somewhere else. And so there's a search for the replacement of who is going to be the new boss. And as that search for his replacement comes down to the line, it becomes apparent that there are two options for this. You or your young protege. You're a little surprised and shocked about this. Well... Not so surprised that they're considering you. After all, this has been something you've been aiming at and lining up for quite a while. But you begin to wonder if maybe you regret that investment that you have placed in that young protege who has now become your chief competitor. Would you have been better off just leaving them to fend for themselves in the dog-eat-dog world of office politics? Has this guy just been using you as a stepping stone on the way to greater things and leaving you to flounder in uh, sort of halfway up the corporate ladder? And you begin to wonder what you should do now. After all, you're the one who deserves the promotion, right? You put in all those hard years of work to get to this position, and he says, some young Johnny come lately. You begin to think of ways that you could tip the scales in your balance instead of his. Ways you could perhaps shade the truth, put a spin on things to suit you instead of him. After all, this is your promotion by right, isn't it? How do we deal with situations like this? And it might be a situation like this in the office. It might be a situation at school in terms of trying to get the higher grades compared to where your classmates are at. It might be a situation within your family, whether it is you or your brother or sister, who ends up with uh, getting that, uh, that higher place, that higher place of honour in the family. In the movie Cars by Pixar which is, uh, I have to say, a family favourite at home. My younger son, Lucas, it's his all-time favourite movie. His second all-time favourite movie is Cars 2. (laughs) 
And uh, in this movie, we have the um, Lightning McQueen, who uh, has a dream of uh, becoming, winning the Piston Cup and being a racing car champion. And, uh, and so he dreams about how one day he will be the champion and the, the chief sponsor, Dynaco, will be sponsoring him. Well, his chief rivals in this, uh, there are two rivals. One is uh, the king. Yeah. Yeah. The king, as you can see, is sponsored by Dynaco and he has been the champion for years and years and years. And he's coming up into his last season. And there's one other competitor here, Chick Hicks, who is the pantomime villain. And uh, he, would, uh, he would sell his own grandmother to, uh, to get to the top of the heap. And as it goes on, uh, these three cars, they, they finish at a dead heat. And so they have to have a final race-off. And as they're going to have this final race-off, Lightning McQueen is determined to get there as soon as he can. But he finds himself sidetracked and stuck in this little out-of-the-way town called Radiator Springs. Now, Lightning McQueen has a choice in terms of which of these two competitors he is going to be like. Is he going to be like the king, someone who is loved as much for the fact that he wins as for how he wins, someone who races with honour? Or is he going to be someone like Chick Hicks, someone who will win at all costs? And while Lightning McQueen is sidetracked in Radiator Springs, he starts to learn important lessons about how it is not just winning that counts. And so as he's picked up these lessons and learnt that there are important people in his life and that he can't just treat people as disposable commodities in his life, he goes to this final race, and he is racing in this final race, and he is winning the race. And behind him, neck and neck, are Chick Hicks and the king. And Chick Hicks turns to the king and he says, I'm not finishing behind you again, old man. And slams into him and makes the king tumble over to this huge wreck. Next, next slide, thanks. Huge wreck on the infield. And everyone is shocked. <gasps> What's happened to the king? Is he alive or is he dead? And Lightning McQueen, as he's coming up about to cross the finish line, he comes up and he comes to that point where he's about to cross and he realizes what's happened and he slams on the brakes and stops just before the finish line and then starts to reverse as Chick Hicks slams through and wins. And Lightning McQueen goes back and he pushes the king over the line. And he says, I thought it would be right that the king finished his last race. And Chick Hicks is going away and celebrating and thinking, aha, I've won it, I'll be the champion now. Everyone will love me. But of course, no one loves him because of the way in which he won. And Lightning McQueen was thinking that he didn't win, and so no one would love him. But what it turned out is that the sponsor of Dynaco was wanting to sponsor him now because he liked the way that he raced. Now we also have this choice, and it's a choice that Abram faced as well in Genesis 13. In Genesis 13 we see Abram returning to the land that God had promised to him. 
But now he is wealthy in, as we see in the passage, livestock and silver and gold. And he's also there with his nephew Lot, who also has many livestock. And we find that this abundance of livestock is causing problems as their two sets of herdsmen are in conflict about who gets first pickings of what was turning out to be insufficient pastures for these two large crowds of herdsmen. What was Abram to do? After all, this was the land that God promised to him, right? This should be his land, not Lot's. Why should he have to struggle feeding his livestock on the land that God promised to him because his nephew was tagging along? Surely the right thing to do would be for Lot to go and find some other place. And yet what does Abram do? What is his attitude to competition and conflict? Is he, like Chick Hicks, someone who views people as disposable? If you see someone ahead of you on the step, you treat them as another step. Is he the sort of person who is not merely satisfied with success, but as well as succeeding, must see other people fail as well? No, Abram is not like that. It is obvious that he and Lot cannot stay together and feed their herds. But a solution is to magnanimously give Lot first dibs on where they will go. So let me give you an idea of the situation there. They were in the land of Canaan. They were in between Bethel and Ai. Now, where this means is that for them, as they look towards the east, you had the Jordan River as it's heading in towards the Dead Sea with pastures that are rich in nutrients. And as the passage said, it reminded them of the Garden of Eden. And if you look to the west, you had pretty mountainous, hilly terrain, which... You know, although you could feed your sheep on there, it's certainly not going to be an easy, as easy a job as if you did it down among the plush land around the Jordan River there. And so all of this land, both to the west and to the east, this is where Abram was earlier when God had promised him this land. And so Lot takes a look. He looks to the east. Sees the rich land, looks to the west, and sees the west land. And what does Lot do? Does he think about all the work that Abram had done and bring them this far? Does he remember that Abram is his elder and think, well, maybe I should defer to Abram in this decision? No, he looks to the left, he looks to the right, and he chooses the good pasture land over there and leaves Abram to take his herds into the hill country. Lot chooses to move to live among the cities on the plain of the Jordan River and pitches his tent there near Sodom, which, as you'll probably know, is was infamous because of its evil and its sin. The Bible here says that the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Now, for those of you who have read ahead in the story, or perhaps you know the story from another time, you know that this association with Sodom only brings Lot trouble. However, at the time, anyone who was there with Lot counselling him would say, you know, 
you've probably made a wise investment in choosing to go here instead of there. And so Abram is left standing as Lot gathers his herdsmen, herds and heads towards that rich plain country of Jordan. Now what was going through Abram's mind at that point? Was he wondering, perhaps, what did God really mean when he promised this land to his descendants? Perhaps God just meant that hilly land to the west. But then God speaks to him. God says to Abram, look around you from where you are, to the north and to the south, to the east and to the west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. God's promise to him still held. And now it was clarified even more. It was all the land that he could see. To the north, the south, the east and the west. God was promising him both the land he was going to occupy immediately and the land that he thought he had given up to Lot. And God also clarifies the promise about descendants. In the previous chapter, God had told Abram that he was going to make him into a great nation. Now God tells Abram that his descendants are going to be so numerous that it will be impossible to count them. He says there will be more than the dust of the earth. So let's go back to our example at the office. How could we apply what we learn from Abram in this passage to that situation? Well, Abram was willing to give up what by rights should have been his. He held on to it loosely. This is exactly the same attitude that Jesus Christ had, as it says in Philippians 2, where it says, Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Jesus was willing to give up his rights. Abram was willing to give up his rights. And so we also must be willing to give up our rights. If you find yourself in that situation, whether, you be, whether it be in the office, at school, or in the family, you must be willing to give up your rights. And you can depend upon the promises of God. No matter where you are in life, you can depend on the promises that God has placed in your life. And you can know that there is no need to climb over others to get ahead in God's kingdom. People are not disposable in God's kingdom and we never need to throw anyone under the bus to make sure that we can get ahead in God's kingdom. You can trust in these promises that God has made even when it seems that God has forgotten them. Even when God's promise lies cold and dead in the, do, in the tomb, as Jesus did for three days, we can know that God can raise these promises from the dead. So you can know that if someone is standing in between you and God's promise... It is not up to you to remove that person from the equation. Let God work out his promises for you in his own time and his own way. And the fact is it may not be in the way that you planned. 
It wasn't for Abram. It wasn't for Lightning McQueen. And it probably won't be for us either. Secondly, as we follow God in the plan that he has laid out for us, things will become more clear as we follow him in faith, step by step. At the beginning of this chapter, God knew that Abram knew that God wanted to make him into a great nation. And that God had promised this land to him. By the end of the chapter, he knew that God was going to make his descendants more numerable than the dust. More numerous than the dust of the earth. And that everywhere he looked, east, west, north, south, God promised all of that land to him. And the third thing that we learn is that by living a life of faith in God like this, we will leave a legacy. Lot lived out his days hiding in a cave in isolation. If you watch Cars 2, Chick Hicks doesn't figure. He's deleted from the storyline. He doesn't matter anymore. I've got a friend in New Zealand. He and his wife are from Singapore, and uh, they were unable to have children. They're now in their 70s, and they've spent their whole lives serving in student ministry. I remember one time going to his home office and seeing a wall plastered with lots and lots of photos, hundreds of photos. He commented to me that they have no children, but they have many grandchildren. They have left a legacy, a spiritual legacy with many descendants. However, it's a legacy that involved God not giving them children. Both Hudson Taylor and David Livingston, who both lost their lives on the mission field, both said at the end of their lives, I never made a sacrifice. I bet probably when they, uh, when they set off to, uh, to go to their respective mission fields in China and in Africa, that they didn't expect to die there. Sometimes God, God's plans don't turn out how we expect them to when we start out. But we can know for sure that when we come to the end of the journey, that it is God's best plan for us. And as Abram, we must remember to trust God and to, to be willing to give up what we think God's promises, God's plan is for us, to not push people out of the way to get there. Because God never calls for us to throw anyone under the bus for his kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for everything that you have given us. Thank you for all the promises that you have for us and all the plans that you have for each of our lives. Lord God, you know the, the situations that each of us are in. And you know that for each of us there are probably issues where we're struggling to see how your plan is going to work out in some aspect of our life, whether it be in our family whether it be at work, whether it be at school, or whether it be in some other field. 
Lord God, help us to trust you. Help us to treat people as you would treat them. And help us be willing to give up our rights and let you work out your plan in your way in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.